Well, what we want to do is to um, introduce you to this concept of emotional sobriety, kind of lay out what it is, what it's about. We want to unpack Bill Wilson's letter, which I just think is such an important piece of literature. And in fact, we're going to be talking about it as Bill's fourth legacy, the legacy that he's left to us, this whole issue of emotional sobriety. This letter was published in the 1958 grapevine. The letter was actually written in 1956. And then after that, we're going to introduce you to a way of thinking about doing an inventory. In step 10, we call it the spot check inventory, right? When you're kind of knocked off balance and you don't know what's going on. So we want to give you some idea of how to assess what's happening for you so you can recover your balance. And I'll talk about it from the emotional sobriety inventory form. Hopefully you have that and you can do one while we're doing that piece of it. And then Fred's going to talk about it from the, the big book perspective. And uh, then we're going to kind of wrap things up at the end and, uh, and kind of pull it all together and hopefully give you a few tips on how to hold on to yourself. So you want to say anything, Fred, about this fourth legacy in terms of that Bill left us? And um, The AA's history of itself is called AA Comes of Age, Bill Wilson, and it's set up on three segments, the three legacies of recovery through the 12 steps, unity through the 12 traditions, and service. The... Um, through the 12 concepts for world service, which a lot of people don't even know exist. And pre-92, uh, AA's symbol on the title page was a triangle and a circle. And each leg of the triangle had one of the recovery, unity, and service. Um, the fourth legacy being really an honorific um, approach to the work that Bill did in his sobriety um, through his own life. Uh, wrote some more about kind of the next phase of our development after getting sober. And in that letter, in the Grapevine article, based on the letter, The Next Frontier, Emotional Sobriety, um, he talks about, I think, what he observed during the, the growing phase of Alcoholics Anonymous after the Jack Alexander article in 1941, you know, it, it forced, they needed money to hire people for the New York office. There were just two of them there to respond to all of the letters and, of interest. So the 12 traditions were codified in the mid-1940s, and Bill wrote their histories of each, how they came about in the back half of the 12 and 12. But my belief is that through Bill's observation of the chaos in early AA development in those growing pains, he observed individual behavior of sober people that gave him a lot of information about how we can get sober but not really be happy or fulfilled. Uh, they've got the booze cure, but are they really happy? So all of that came together with his own um, kind of next phase of recovery when he was fighting off another depression. Uh, and 12 and 12 was published in 1953, but then Bill finally talks about the, the whole personal story of this. And I think the, the greatest genius he, he gives in that is basically in sobriety we, we suffer because we demand that other people meet our needs through dominance of them or dependence upon them. And I'm, really, what more do we need to know? Um, Workshop over. <laughs> once, once you figure out how you can demand through dependency, guys, um, you got it made. Harry, you made, we were talking about what you think that wouldn't it be great to add this in the big book in some way, right? This 
Yeah, I thought that the Bill, Bill Wilson's letter on emotional sobriety should be an appendix in the big book. It's uh, the fourth legacy. It really, we should really push for that one. It's just that important a piece of work. Yeah, that's right. And I think most importantly, it talks about something I just see all the time. And there are people here with 20, 30, 40, 50 years of, of recovery, but the... Um, um, the absolute inevitability of adversity in in our lives is a reality that we all are facing or will face, and and this is the this is the magic that will help us get through it. Yeah, right. On. I, I've been treating people that have gone through treatment now for over three decades, and there always comes that point in time right after the pink cloud, after you're feeling better physically, and you know everything's going your way, the honeymoon is over, where you start to realize that, my God, I don't know how to deal with life on life's terms, right? You, all these feelings that you are avoiding, not facing, not dealing with in your life now are confronting you smack dab, right, with reality, and we don't know what to do with it. And I was uh, doing a presentation with Fred out at the New England Professional Group, and he coined this term sober suffering, and I think it's an important concept for you to, to understand. So, Fred, tell us about that. Well, I know personally my first two years of, of uh, sobriety were um, happy I, because I would wake up every morning and because I didn't have a hangover, I would be euphoric. It was good for euphoria all day. Um, and what a great gift uh, kind of to have a, a happy mood uh, just simply because when I woke up in the morning, I was so used to suffering. It was, for a long time, a great joy uh, to know where I was when I woke up and if there was money or not in my wallet, um, not to af ask, have to ask people if I had a good time or not the night before. And, and then eventually I, I ran into, got married four years into sobriety and ran into issues in my marriage and um, procrastination was one of them. And so it can take many forms, but I define sober suffering as when you wake up in the morning and say, I got sober to feel like this 30 days in a row. Something has moved in and, and things are just off and you've lost that, that nascent newcomer joy. Um, and it can often be the beginning of, of a relapse or the beginning of the end because we think the 12-step process has failed. Whereas I think Bill's critical and important message is that this is a part of the next phase of our development. And I've started underlining things in the big book that, that talk about suffering. Uh, and there's more reference to suffering in the big book you know, along with Garrett's. There's a lot of reference to suffering because for us, suffering is the touchstone of, of spiritual growth. And so for me, it's important to know that sober suffering isn't the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of the next phase of my development. If I can then um, start to use the steps formally, not just in 10 and 11, but in have to go back one through nine to address and analyze and learn from um, this new powerlessness. And I can't emphasize enough the importance of seeing trouble not as an indication that something's wrong. You know, we often think, boy, I'm having trouble means that something's not right. 
And the truth of it is, is that trouble means that something's right in your recovery. And now you have an invitation to take that next step in your development. We'll be talking about what that looks like and what that's like. But it's a whole different mindset, right? This is what Chuck C. was talking about, is we put on a new pair of glasses and we look at these things not as trouble as indicating something's wrong, but as something's right and that I'm being called to step up in a way that I haven't stepped up before. You know, one of the things that is so true about us is that avoidance in terms of a way of trying to deal with life is kind of the hallmark of every one of us and a legacy that we've all had up to the time of coming to the program. And what happens in our recovery is we start facing ourselves. And more importantly, I said this the other day, we start facing who we're not. And we have a chance to do something about that in a very different way, Harry, don't you think? Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. You know, I think the, the object of this exercise for me is always to take a, what can be a very complicated issue, subject, and to simplify it in terms that even my brain will understand. Yeah. And for all of us to be able to come away from an experience together and really believe, feel, and say, you know, I am just enough is, is, is an extraordinary extraordinary place to be. Um, so why don't we move on with your, your let's, let's do slideshow that. and see what people Let's say. talk about what we want to do is, first of all, put emotional sobriety in the context of the steps so you can see how that the invitation to look at this issue is ongoing, right, in our program. And this is something that I really got from and was validated when I got to see Fred and, and hear him talk. So here's step four. We're being asked to, to, to see how our erratic emotions victimize us. It often took a long time, right? It's something that doesn't come easy for us because we've really been trying to, we've had this concept of who we think we should be, and we don't like when we don't fit with that concept, with that idea of who we think we should be. So it takes a long time for us to get real honest with ourselves. That's why we're told all the time that more is going to be revealed. Then it goes, it says, first of all, we had to admit that we had many of these defects. Well, I don't know about you, but before I came in the program, I didn't want to own any defects of character. For me, that, there was something wrong with me if I had a defective character. Somehow I had this idea that I had to be somehow free of all that to be okay. And then it goes on to say, even though such disclosures, you know, even though such disclosures were painful and humiliating, I had to find a way to start facing these things. And today, what I tell people all the time, only the best in you can see the worst in you. And you got to hear that. Is when you're seeing the worst of you, that's the best of you looking at yourself. And that is one way I think we can start to support ourselves on this journey and take a look at some things that can be quite difficult. You guys can weigh in on this or I can move on if you have something you want to add to it. I, I just wanted to add that these quotes are from the essay on step four in the 12 and 12. And in the, the foreword, um, you know, 12 years into sobriety, somebody unlocked the big book for me, and the big book came alive. Well, about 30 years into sobriety, somebody unlocked in me the 12 and 12, and the 12 and 12 came alive. Because I was told what it's pointed out, what it subtly talks about in the foreword of the 12 and 12, which was published in 1953, three years before Bill's letter to the old timer in California and, and five years before his grapevine article of that letter appeared. 
And in the foreword, it says basically that the big book uh, became the basic text of this society, and it still is. The 12 and 12, this present volume, proposes to broaden and deepen our understanding of the steps as first written in the earlier work. So one of the proper uses of the 12 and 12 is as a study guide for the big book, but now in a broader and deeper way for the purpose of going through the steps again to get into emotional sobriety, which implies emotional inebriety, just the way the steps, steps help me move from alcohol inebriety to alcohol sobriety. And also in the 12 and 12, it highlights three phases of our development, uh, getting sober, getting into emotional balance, and living to good purpose under all conditions. And it also emphasizes uh, the word instinct. The word doesn't appear in the big book, except in an obscure medical appendix where a neurologist thought that the fellowship was a herd instinct. But nowhere else in the big book does that word appear, yet it appears 37 times in the 12 and 12. So as I had to heal from the shame of active addiction by learning that I had a body that couldn't tolerate alcohol and I had a mind that couldn't leave alcohol alone to heal from the shame of that, I also have to heal from the shame of sober suffering and knowing that the instincts are the source of my sober suffering, but the instincts so necessary for my existence either are over or underdeveloped. And then I can go on to see that all of these character defects that emerge in sobriety are good things inside of me that are exceeding their proper function or not meeting their minimal function. And then I can proceed knowing again that I, ha I still have a disease, only now it's my humanness, not alcohol. You know, I um, I think part of the work is when when you I was thinking of Cheryl earlier this morning doing her talk on shame and guilt, and I, I know the relief that comes to patients when I tell them the distinction and that they actually can trade in some of their mistaken shame for a little bit of guilt, and get on with their life. And can do something about it, make amends. We have steps to do that. I also think that we have to define whether or not our defects are are really gifts, um, whether they've been given to us by God or whether or not they've been acquired. Um, the acquired ones usually take a close look. The other ones may be a gift that just keep us where we need to be. Perhaps we're not ready. And one of the most uh, important things that I could share with you is to shamelessly plagiarize our own Mike Robbins, um, who will tell the newcomers often that, uh, you know, he holds up a handkerchief, and if you hold up a handkerchief and you cut a hole right in the middle of the handkerchief and put that little piece of fabric over here, that's called the defect. But it may not be absolutely something wrong. It may not just be enough of everything that needs to be there. And, and, and we really have to be certain that we're not, you know, I asked my wife once, she was going to talk to a bunch of women at the center, and I said, you know, what is the one gift you would give these new people in recovery? And she said, just be gentle with yourselves. Just take it a little easier on yourself. It's, you're not that bad. The disease is, but you're not. Let's move on. Well, look, we could define mental health is the coordination of all that you are. So a lot of times one of the issues that I see come up for somebody is that they have this, this bully, this top dog, that tries to beat you into submission to do what you're supposed to be doing in your life. Now, we've been listening to that part way too long, right? That part really has had nothing good to say to you except the fact that it is asking you to be the best you can be. 
not in a very good way. <laughs> Granted, right? And that you can have other parts of you encourage you to do that. But that is the message. That's the hole in the handkerchief, right? That's that other piece. And every one of these things has a value to you, but only if you learn how to organize yourself in a better way so that you have the best in you running the rest in you. But when the worst in you runs the rest of you, you're going to have a lot of sober suffering. That's the bottom line. You've got to write that down. Yes, that's, that's, that was a, that was, it's on tape, so we'll be able to run it. So step seven, we reluctantly come to grips with those serious character flaws that made problem drinkers of us in the first place. So what are we talking about? These basic flaws, right? These basic character problems that we have. Flaws that must be dealt with to, pre to prevent a retreat into alcoholism once again. So what we're saying is if we don't do this work, then our sobriety is always going to be on shaky ground. Always is going to be on shaky ground. And somehow we have to see that we have to have a new relationship with ourselves if this is going to work. You know, every now and then there's a, something profound that comes up as one of those checkpoints for us all to look at. And it's a private matter for yourselves, but none of this work happens without action. And um, the tool today is you have a step group. And are you meeting weekly in your step group? Do you actively work those steps with other men and women? And are you taking advantage of that? Because this is not something that works out well if you do it once a year. And I would add from that last slide that the character flaws that made us problem drinkers in the first place is I think there's a the public health model way of looking at that, that I had these character flaws before I started drinking. And they were risk factors in the development of my alcoholism. Risk factors plus resiliency factors equal outcome. And so causation is, uh, for me, not as certain an area as certainly as risk factor. But these flaws were actually part of how I had to adapt as a kid to less than nurturing circumstances in my childhood. And they weren't flaws back then. They were how I, what I had to do to adapt to survive emotionally. And thus, the genesis of these character flaws is perfectly understandable and tragic that they had to be there. But not everybody who has these childhood elements turns out to be an alcoholic, but it's, just, it's a common serious risk factor for everyone. So in step eight, once again, we're being asked to kind of take a look at the problems that we have, looking for our fundamental difficulties, since defective relations with human beings have nearly always been the immediate causes of our woes, including our alcoholism. Calm, thoughtful reflection on personal relations can deepen our insight. So you see, over and over again, you're being invited to take a look at yourself and where you're having difficulty. Remember what I was saying before, our first response is often to want to avoid ourselves and not see these things. But here we're being asked to look at ourselves honestly, to be able to see some of the things that we haven't wanted to see. And we need to be able to do that to deepen our insight in terms of how we're functioning and what's going on and where we need to make some improvements. I'd like to just add 
what I think is a valid clinical description of childhood trauma that Bill writes on the bottom of page 79, the same page um, just before the this quote on page 80. Very deep, sometimes quite forgotten, damaging emotional conflicts persist below the level of consciousness. At the time of these occurrences, they may actually have given our emotions violent twists, which have since discolored our personalities and altered our lives for the worse. Right on. So you see how that leads to this next thing, that every time that we're disturbed, no matter what, there's something wrong with us. It's not the other person. If we're upset, there's something going on with us. And that's what emotional sobriety is all about. It's helping you be able to identify what's going on that has you reacting in this way and giving yourself a chance to discover some new possibilities. Emotional sobriety is about the discovery of new possibilities within yourself and in how to cope with life. So here we're talk, we're encouraged about this self-searching is the means by which we bring a new vision, new action, right, and grace to bear upon the dark and negative sides of our nature. The sides that we didn't want to look at, we didn't want to see. Let's say, and what you're going to be seeing is how demanding we can truly be, how controlling we are, how we want things to go our way. But if we don't look at that, we don't start dealing with it, there's no possibility of something different and new. And Fred asked me to add this one, which I think is, is so important. It says, finally, we begin to see that all people, including ourselves, are to some extent emotionally ill, right? As well as frequently wrong. That part was hard to swallow, right? God, wrong? You're kidding me, right? And then we approach, then we can start to approach this true tolerance and see what real love for our fellows actually means. And I would also say in parentheses, what real love for ourselves really means is what Harry was talking about. It will become more and more evident as we go forward that it is pointless to become angry or to get hurt by people. I would also say pointless to blame who people who, like us, are suffering from the pains of growing up. See, I love that bumper sticker that says, please be patient with me, God isn't finished with me yet. God, if we could just remember that all the time when somebody's really driving you nuts, they're struggling too. It's no different. They're no, in no different or better place than you are. Part of the spiritual template that I don't think Bill even knew he had makes his writing so consistent. And in the foreword, he says, the purpose of this book is to broaden and deepen our understanding of the steps as first written in the big book. So on page 84 in step 10 in the big book, it says, we have entered the world of the spirit. Our next function is to grow in understanding, uh, in knowledge, uh, understanding and effectiveness. And the end of that paragraph says, tolerance and love of others is our code. So now he says, true tolerance and real love. So he's broadened and deepened those 10th step um, codes to even greater tolerance and greater love. Um, that's the kind of stuff that keeps this stuff alive for me. You know, our own beloved Jim West um, out here in the desert used to say to me, you know, kid, uh, those character defects you prayed for yesterday will be back on your lawn like mushrooms tomorrow morning. <laughs> You're going to have to do that again. You're going to have to do it again. It's like, um, I don't know a diabetic that gets credit today for last Saturday's insulin. And I don't know any of us are going to get credit for a spiritual condition we had last Monday again today. 
and 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 we all kind of slip into that notion that uh, you know we're sometimes more okay than we really are. I, I love this part about there's always something wrong with me. I mean, anybody who's married knows that. <laughs> and to add to Jim West's metaphor, my belief is that the progress in this program is progress in the things that I suffer from. And so what once were poisonous mushrooms blooming in my yard every morning, then over time they become edible mushrooms. Yeah, right on. That's a great metaphor. Eating mushrooms, right? We're talking about eating mushrooms. How many of you guys did shrooms before? Oh, my God. This is California. This is California. So we got a bowl of mushrooms in the back, and if you'd like to join us on the trip this afternoon, and we're going to get into some real spirituality, I'll tell you. All right, let's kind of understand this emotional sobriety thing we're talking about. I'm going to run through these so we can get to Bill's letter, because that's so meaty. So this is Dr. Irv Polster and his wife, Miriam. They said, envisioning a world where freedom to act is somehow given to us, is bestowed or guaranteed, rather than achieved, is regrettably wishful thinking. Well, I thought that that is what was supposed to happen, that somehow you were supposed to give me that freedom to act. And so I was constantly looking to you to make me okay and to give me that permission. And what we see in emotional sobriety is that we start to learn how to move, what Fritz called it, is moving from environmental support, where I'm dependent on you, right, to make me feel okay, to self-support, where I can start standing on my own two feet. And that doesn't mean to be self-sufficient. That means if I got trouble, I can call up Harry. Hey, Harry. Give me some feedback on how I might be able to get my balance back in this situation. But standing on my own two feet is to recognize when I need to do that. And that's such an important thing. This is Virginia Satir. I love her. She says it this way. We're always trying to get out of our emotional jail. Mostly we try by begging, threatening, or pleasing other people, trying to get them to do it for us. See, it's the same concept is that most of us think that I can only be all right if you treat me a certain way, if you validate me. But if that's the case, then you hold my well-being. I don't. I've taken my emotional center of gravity and I've moved it into you. So you can easily knock me off balance by what you say, how you look, what you do, how you think about me. All of that stuff starts to define me instead of finding some way to define myself and hold on to myself. Such an important part. And I love, this is Victor Franco, and he says it this way, there's a space between the stimulus and our response to it, right? Try to live in that space. I mean, it's, that's what this emotional sobriety is all about. It's living in that space. And I just go on to say the same thing, is that emotional sobriety is achieved when what you do is a determining force in your well-being, right? Rather than allowing your emotional well-being to be overly influenced by external events or by what other people are or are not doing. So let's jump into Bill's letter. This was actually written in 56. As Fred told you, it was published in 58 under the title of uh, Emotional Sobriety, The Next Frontier. So what we're going to do is we're going to listen to a part of the letter, and then each of us will, if anything comes to mind, we'll make some comments about it. I think many oldsters who have put our booze cure okay. to the audio was successful working. tests still find that they often lack 
Well, it's not working. So we're going to hold ahead and read it, I guess, right? We have to go ahead and adjust. So I think that many oldsters who have put our booze cure to severe but successful tests still find that they often lack emotional sobriety. Perhaps they're going to be the spearhead for the next major development in AA, the development of much more real maturity and balance, which is to say humility in our relations with ourselves and our fellows and with God. So, Fred, what comes to mind as you hear Bill write that? Well, this is, I think, part of what he observed in individual behavior of that unruly, chaotic AA growth. He also saw that at the group level. So they resolved how that expressed itself at the group level by the group conscience determining these um, traditions. Um, you know, they had a long list of people who came into AA. Uh, humorous, fallen women, beggars, tramps, queers, uh, weren't welcome. And then they finally realized that they were turning these people away to die. So the group conscience, the collective, we can't do that. Let the person determine if they're an alcoholic or not. That's the only important opinion. And so um, the um, theme of the 12 and 12 in all of the essays on the steps is humility, which is, among many things, teachability. But it's also the best hedge against the two greatest risks to continued spiritual growth that Emmett Fox points out, um, spiritual pride and self-righteousness. Because when I start to grow spiritually, my ego's still in the room. And so that I can avoid spiritual pride and self-righteousness if I remember that Humility, which is basically, these are gifts that I'm getting as a result of the work that I'm doing, not because I'm creating them. You know, I sound like a broken record throughout this, and I'm going to come back to the simple meditation I'd like you all to live with and that, leave with, and that is, I'm just enough. I'm, I'm just enough. I was thinking what an extraordinary life we'd have if there was absolutely zero need for manipulation. We had perfect acceptance of who and what we are at any point in time and of those with whom we're in relationships with. So the, the, a world without our need for manipulation um, seems like nirvana to me. You know, what stood out for me on this, sorry, we've got some audio difficulties. We're going to try to straighten this out because I'd love you to hear this guy that recorded this. But. Um, what stood out for me is that this was the term that Bill used, emotional sobriety. And I wasn't able to find Fred, and I don't think there is any evidence that this was talked about before that period of time. Emotional sobriety, boy, a whole other concept. Didn't he broaden the horizon for us in terms of what he was talking about? And then he defined it as somehow real maturity, right, and balance in our lives, in relationship with others, right, with the, our higher power but also in relationship to ourself. That's the thing that stood out to me. My God, I never thought of myself as having a relationship with myself. I just thought of myself going through life. And then all of a sudden I started to look at, you know what, I am in relationship with myself. Dr. Karen Horney has this great line that says that when we're in the middle of our troubles, we have lost our ability to be sincere with ourselves. Emotional sobriety is about learning how to become sincere with yourself, how to be able to stand with yourself, right, and be able to support yourself, not where you're dominating a situation, but where you strive 
to find a, a solution that works for the other person and works for you at the same time. It's what Martin Buber called the I-thou relationship, where you're as important as me, not more and not less. And see, that kind of a relationship I had no idea about. I had no concept that that could exist. Because for me, it was either you're winning or you're losing kind of a thing. And of course, I wanted to be on the winning side, not the losing side. I think some people do opt to be on the losing side. That's another solution that people have in life. But that's what I was looking for. So this is such a great, you know, broadening of our horizons in terms of what's possible in our recovery. Let's see if we've got this thing fixed now. One other comment on... Um, Those adolescent well, urges that so well, many of us have for top approval, perfect security, and perfect romance. All right, we'll go back to this. Go ahead, Fred, then we'll be able to get the, the full um, thing. Yeah, emotional sobriety is a, is a unique term. However, in the directions for steps 10 and 11 on pages 84 to 88, there are 23 different red flags to look out for. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear, doubt, agitation, and decision. And those are all the symptoms of emotional inebriety. But back then, they were just managing them as they came up during the day. Then Bill realized that these were issues not only that would that were more than a spot check, stuff that came up unpredictably during the day. He calls them situations of longer standing. And these are the things that eventually, in a trickle source, generate sober suffering well down the road, but no less important than the suffering of step one the first time through. Those adolescent urges that so many of us have for top approval, perfect security, and perfect romance, urges quite appropriate to age 17, prove to be an impossible way of life when we are at age 47 or 57. I think he made it more palatable by saying adolescent urges, right? And I guess they are in many ways. We could think about that. We started forming some of these ideas, at least cognitively, in those adolescent. But wanting things to be perfect, isn't that an interesting concept that we were driving ourselves in setting up a situation where things had to fit a certain concept. And we dedicated ourselves to try to actualize that concept. You see, that was the veer that we took in our development, is that as soon as we started to develop or to dedicate ourselves to developing a concept of who we should be, we stopped self-actualizing. We lost the ability to realize our true potential because all of our energy that need to grow, right, was now attached to doing this insane thing of trying to be perfect. I want top approval. I want everybody to like me. Perfect security. I, want, I don't want to feel any anxiety or fear ever. I don't want that to be a part of my life. And then the other thing, perfect romance, which usually translate, I want my partner to do everything I want them to do. That's the insanity of this thing. But when you're in it and you're doing that, you think that's what I'm supposed to be doing. This is how I'm supposed to be living my life. This is, this is the force that my life is a direction, a trajectory that my life is supposed to be on. And an impossible way of life. Boy, it is, huh? Yeah, keep going. This is beautiful. Since AA began, I've taken immense wallops in all those areas because of my failure to grow up emotionally and spiritually. My God, how painful it is to keep demanding the impossible and how very painful to discover finally that all along we had the cart before the horse. 
Then comes the final agony of seeing how awfully wrong we have been, but still finding ourselves unable to get off the emotional merry-go-round. Failure to grow up, Harry, huh? Yeah. I'm one of those guys who likes to bang his head against the wall because it feels so good when I stop. Yeah. <laughs> the cart before the horse, right? What is this cart before the horse thing, right? That, that somehow we've got things backwards in terms of what we're trying to do, right? It's that we're trying to control everybody else instead of somehow learning how to regulate ourselves. See, that's the cart before the horse, is that when I put all this on you and try to make you different, instead of then looking at what I can do to make the situation different, I've totally disempowered myself. Now I fall into blaming you. Now I fall into making demands on how you're supposed to behave. All of that nonsense now comes from that particular direction that I take. Yeah, I'm looking at this part about failure to grow up emotionally and spiritually, and and um, I don't think this is a the carrot that's in front of the in front of the horse. <laughs> I think that uh, the realization that I may not be growing up today, today emotionally or spiritually, has an immediate fix. It's 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 a relatively simple thing to do. Once the acceptance is there, you know. Um, Am I going to be okay self-contained? What kind of a, we're all physicians, what kind of a physician uh, do I think I need? And what kind of a physician can I be to myself? How am I ministering to myself today? What am I worth? Am I worthy of the kindness that sometimes I show other people and never show myself? How many of you have been in a relationship with someone who says, I just wish that you could treat me the way you treat other people. Oh. <laughs> oh. This last, the last phrase okay. on that quote points out, I think, the, the step, the 12 and 12 brings me a new definition of step one. And when it says that even when we see these things, we're not able to stop doing them. Um, when it goes beyond our ability to recognize them and correct them in the moment. Um, the language on page 42 in the 12 and 12 in the second paragraph says, powerfully, blindly, many times subtly, these instincts out of control drive us, dominate us, and insist upon ruling our lives. They tyrannize us. And so this is really a new step one that is no less important than the step one that got me to this new step one. Uh, but Bill's referring to that there, that this is also something that, even though we see it, we're not able to get rid of it on our own, and that's why we go back to step one. How to translate a right mental conviction into a right emotional result, and so into easy, happy, and good living? Well, that's not only the neurotic's problem. It's the problem of life itself for all of us who have got to the point of real willingness to hew to right principles in all of our affairs. Right mental conviction into a right emotional result. See, I was able to get the idea of what would be a better way to function, but somehow I couldn't integrate it with how I was feeling and reacting. There was a missing piece in my development. And that's what this whole thing is about, is how can we find that missing piece so we can integrate these great principles, this way of living, so that it makes sense, that I can practice it in all my affairs, so it can help me, so I can help myself stay centered 
instead of getting knocked off balance all the time. You know, you're going to have to talk about Maddie. We will talk about Maddie. We are going to get into that at some point in time. Let's run into the next one. Even then, as we hew away, peace and joy might still elude us. That's the place so many AA oldsters have come to. And it's a hell of a spot, literally. How shall our unconscious, from which so many of our fears, compulsions, and phony aspirations still stream, be brought into line with what we actually believe, know, and want? How to convince our dumb, raging, and hidden Mr. Hyde becomes our main task. Fred, how, how depressed do you think he was when he wrote this letter? I don't know. He, he was approaching another depression that scared the hell out of him because he'd been through some zingers. Um, I think he was once burned, twice cautious, and so really went to work to be more proactive this time. He felt it coming. And you could see some of the work that he did started to help him say, you know, there's something going on here that my personality, my character was built on this foundation that really was a compromise. I had to somehow deal with these fears, right, and these phony aspirations. Well, wanting everybody to like you, having perfect security, right, perfect romance, that's a phony aspiration. That's setting up an idea of how you're supposed to be rather than dealing with the reality is, is that nothing's ever going to be perfect. I'm never going to be perfect. And the world isn't going to be perfect. But you can see that early on when we make these decisions, we set in motion this whole sequence of events that develops a character that now demands things to be that way. That's why in psychotherapy, we've had a big shift. Instead of going back and dealing with childhood issues, it's helping people become aware of their character disorder. And to see that the problem is now not what, ha yeah, what happened in your past, that's also part of it, but it's more in terms of how you responded to it and dealt with it. And those responses were ne needed, necessary at the time, helped you survive, but they're outdated today. They're not serving you well. So there's been this whole shift, and Bill really anticipated the direction we were going in psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. My wife's uh, sponsor, who was a powerful force in my life and still is, although she's been gone for 20 years, um, used to say, we react to the present as though it's the past. Yeah. Right. And the, the subcortex is... It's the neurobiology of addiction that I understand through a couple of sessions with Omar and a bunch of other Dr. Seppala. Um, the seat of the illness of the mind that can't continue to see the truth about what happens when I drink is the subcortex. And this hidden, dumb, raging, hidden Mr. Hyde, it's the same thing, only it's that survival brain and what it has learned how to survive in my childhood that keeps because the cortex can't outthink the subcortex. And so this is another transformation, just as I needed the first time through. I've recently come to believe that this can be achieved. I believe so because I begin to see many benighted ones, folks like you and me, commencing to get results. Last autumn, depression, having no really rational cause at all, almost took me to the cleaners. I began to be scared that I was in for another long chronic spell. 
considering the grief I've had with depressions, it wasn't a bright prospect. I kept asking myself, why can't the 12 steps work to release depression? By the hour, I stared at the St. Francis prayer. It's better to comfort than to be comforted. Here was the formula, all right, but why didn't it work? Suddenly, I realized what the matter was. My basic flaw had always been dependence, almost absolute dependence on people or circumstances to supply me with prestige, security, and the like. Failing to get these things according to my perfectionist dreams and specifications, I had fought for them. And when defeat came, so did my depression. So this was Bill's insight. When he started to look at the pattern to his reactions and what was going on, he realized that he was dependent, that he had what we call other validated self-esteem. He was okay as long as other people thought well of him or did what he wanted them to do or that situations unfolded according to his expectations, to his desires. And when they didn't, he reacted to them by trying to control the situation. He said he fought for them. That's one of three responses. You can try to control the situation, you can become a people pleaser, or you can run away. Those are the three things we do when we hit that wall. Bill tried to control the situation. He fought for them, tried to get people to do it his way. And when they didn't, all he could do was feel deflated. And he got depressed. Because he's thinking, my God. You know, life is never going to be what I want it to be. See, that's how he got himself started to realize what was going on with his depression. And this just tells us something very important, is that the reactions we have in understanding them can help us start to understand what we need to do to be different. You know, there's a great line that says you can't solve a problem with the consciousness that created it. So you have to be able to remove yourself from it enough to be able to see that there's some other possibilities. Bill's um, reference again to um, prestige, security, and the like, he probably restates the three general categories of instincts 25 times. Um, and the other one is perfect approval. That's the social instinct along with prestige, perfect security, and perfect romance. So the three general categories are to be secure, to be social, and to be sexual. And those are the elements that are unbalanced that allow me to proceed not as a bad person who needs to get good, but as a good person who needs to get well again, not from character defects that need to be eliminated, but from good things in me that are not in my best interest for survival, unsustainable. And what are your options when you find that people and circumstances are not supplying me with my prestige and security? What are your options? Manipulation, coercion, using the power differential, begging? Drinking. And that's what we did a lot of, right? That would drive us in so many different directions. Mm -hmm. It's the end game of emotional inebriety. There wasn't a chance of making the outgoing love of St. Francis a workable and joyous way of life until these fatal and almost absolute dependencies were cut away. Because I had over the years undergone a little spiritual development, 
the absolute quality of these frightful dependencies had never before been so starkly revealed. Reinforced by what grace I could secure in prayer, I found I had to exert every ounce of will and action to cut off these faulty emotional dependencies upon people, upon AA, indeed upon any act or circumstance whatsoever. Then could I be free to love as Francis did. Emotional and instinctual satisfactions I saw were really the extra dividends of having love, offering love, and expressing love appropriate to each relation of life. A lot of people are shocked that Bill is talking about cutting off his emotional dependency upon AA. We can understand it in terms of the other things, but you know, I was always had this notion when I first came to the program that I was shifting one unhealthy dependency for a healthier dependency on the program. Well, that was my limited consciousness at that time that grabbed a hold of that. The truth of it is, is the steps help us really find true freedom. And it's not about being dependent on the program, it's using the principles here to really start to realize our true potential. To be able to stand on our own two feet, to be able to take care of ourselves, to not let our well-being be dependent on what, what is happening and what other people are doing or what is happening in our life, but to somehow be able to keep that center of gravity within ourselves to be able to regain balance. There's so much talk about resiliency right now, the ability to bounce back. Well, if I'm dependent, my resiliency depends upon you. Are you going to make it okay for me? And what we're talking about is true resiliency is how can you make it okay? Dr. Nathaniel Brandon, a great, great psychologist in L.A., writes a lot about self-esteem. Above his door, he has a sign that says, no one is coming. <laughs> You're going to have to show up. You've got to show up for your own life. You've got to somehow put yourself smack in the middle of your life and start to try to use all of the different parts of yourself to figure this thing out. The other thing that stands out here is this having love, offering love, and expressing love appropriate to each relation of life. You see, when we're operating out of that fixed position, out of those absolutes that I need perfect security, perfect romance, then there's no discrimination on my part. I want everyone to like me. I want things to be perfect all the time. But see, as soon as I can let go of that, now I can have more flexibility. You know, you may like me, you may not like me. I may like you, I may not like you. I have that option, you have that option. We don't need to be fixed in it, right? There's no demand to it. But when I'm coming from this other place in me, then I have a lot of rules about how you're supposed to behave for me to be okay. I think what the letter really points to is just what kind of a spiritual malady we really have. Oh, yes. <laughs> Doesn't it? And that it does have a spiritual solution. And as Fred said earlier, you know, spirituality is love. And God, no matter what how you define that is love. Yeah. And do we open ourselves up to that? That's being enough. In the word that uh, was used last night, right, was the word vulnerability. Yeah. I mean, we heard that word talked about last night, and really that's such an important part of this whole discussion, is learning how to face ourselves and become vulnerable and start to see ourselves as we are and as what's really going on.
That quote could be a part of Bill Step 6 and 7. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. The last quote would be a part of Bills 6 and 7 work as characterized by Joe and Charlie, which is a really good early practice of 6 and 7. Don't do what you want to do is 6. And do what you don't want to do is 7. <laughs> and thus he was That's not good. doing those dependencies. You know, he's just really, I can't do that. i got to love him. And it's, it's the healthiest possible practice. You get rid of the old. To change, we have to get rid of the old and start practicing the new. And so, again, there's Bill really working the steps. And, you know, that's that, that essence of that is aiming at developing the best possible attitude. Yep. I even extend that to say aiming at developing the best possible part of you, the, your, your best in your life, and letting that really, really carry the ball. Plainly, I could not avail myself to God's love until I was able to offer it back to him by loving others as he would have me. And I couldn't possibly do that so long as I was victimized by false dependencies. For my dependencies meant demand, a demand for the possession and control of the people and the conditions surrounding me. While those words absolute dependence may look like a gimmick, they were the ones that helped to trigger my release into my present degree of stability and quietness of mind, qualities which I am now trying to consolidate by offering love to others regardless of the return to me. So here Bill is owning it, right? My dependencies meant a demand. He's saying, I realize how outrageous I've been. We, I have been incredibly outrageous in my life and I didn't want to own that. I wanted to try to be reasonable with you and try to point, try to get you to believe that my demands made sense. Right? So we become real tricky about this stuff is we try to convince somebody that it's not the way that it really seems. I'm not the way I really seem. It's not that I'm being demanding. This is, of course, what a good partner would do for someone if they love them. You see how tricky that is? I played a lot of games like that with myself and other people. But when you own it and just say, I'm outrageous. I want everything to go my way. I expect you to do everything I want you to do. And what's the problem? <laughs> <laughs> but that's the level of honesty that we got to get with ourselves is to look at ourselves that straight without running away from it. I think what he says here is it's all an illusion. That's right. My dependence on possession, my dependence on control. I mean, what do you really control? We control nothing. Yes, yeah, true. We control absolutely nothing. We own absolutely nothing. And um, our condition at the end will prove that. Yeah. Well, see, that's another way of looking at what's happening with the steps. They continue to shatter these illusions, these myths that we have about what we need to be okay, okay. and how things have to be for us to be okay. And now we're able to develop a whole new set of ways of thinking about ourselves, thinking about life. That's why Chuck C. called it a new pair of glasses. Mm -hmm. Fred, do you want to say anything about this one? No, I was just pondering that mushroom metaphor. <laughs> the, the psilocybic mushrooms became poisonous mushrooms, became edible mushrooms. Path of recovery. That's it. That's exactly the path of recovery. All right. This seems to be the primary healing circuit. An outgoing love of God's creation and his people 
by means of which we avail ourselves of his love for us. It's most clear that the real current can't flow until our paralyzing dependencies are broken, and broken at depth. Only then can we possibly have a glimmer of what adult love really is. And see, when we start to do this work, we go back to what Harry said earlier, right? How many times our partners have said to us, God, I wish you would treat me as nice as you treat a stranger. Well, what adult love looks like is treating your partner even better than you treat a stranger. That's what it starts to look like. But you've got to do this work because you can't do that unless you face some of these things inside of you, your outrageousness, how demanding you are, how you want to control everything. These things become very important to get to the emotional sobriety. And we're going to see that when we get to the inventory in a little bit. If we examine every disturbance we have, great or small, we will find at the root of it some unhealthy dependence and its consequent demand. Let us, with God's help, continually surrender these hobbling demands. Then we can be set free to live and love. We may then be able to gain emotional sobriety. Wow, isn't this an amazing revelation to me, right? If we look at every situation where we're upset, we're going to be able to see in it, what's the hook? What's causing me to react the way that I'm reacting? And what can I do to unhook myself and to unhook other people from my demands? That's what Bill is really saying that we can do. We can step back and start to now use this honesty that we've developed with ourselves, this humility that we must have in order to look at ourselves in this way, to start to unravel this whole dilemma that happens when we start to demand other people live up to our expectations. And I think about our natural tendency to look at some of this verbosity as, yeah, I know. You know, yeah, I, I, I get it. I know. I, let's move on. This is taking up a lot of time. Um, um, I, I understand it. This may not be me, but but the answer doesn't lie within us. If you're in a relationship, it lies with the person with whom we're in the relationship with. Go and ask someone who you're in a relationship with and ask them how close you are to emotional sobriety. You know, how dependent are you on them for for their feedback and their love? Am I providing it for, my, for myself? Am I providing it for you? And do you think I need this? Do you think I need this? Am I finding today uh, one unhealthy demand that, that disturbs me? Am I going to become closer to being enough today? And am I taking you with me? Yeah. Fred, you want to say anything? This um, is Bill's fourth step uh, for emotional sobriety. If we examine every disturbance, so we're looking at, at the resentment, fears, and guilt, shame, and remorse associated with harms to others in sobriety. And... There's no such thing as an isolated incident when it comes to relationships. And what this reveals is that my current unmanaged, defective relations with other human beings has in it patterns that I can then trace back to earlier relationships. And they all wind up back in what I had to do to adapt as a kid to survive an environment that was less than nurturing. And so the first one through nine, I clean up the wreckage of active addiction. The emotional sobriety one through nine, I clean up the wreckage of sobriety that also gives me peace with my past. And then the ultimate third cycle of live to good purpose under all conditions is simply cleaning up the wreckage of waking up. (laughs) 
That's right. <laughs> there goes my money. <laughs> Of course, I haven't offered you a really new idea, only a gimmick that has started to unhook several of my own hexes at depth. Nowadays, my brain no longer races compulsively in either elation, grandiosity, or depression. I've been given a quiet place in bright sunshine. Well, let's give a round of applause for Bill Wilson, huh, for giving us his fourth, this fourth legacy. And I think that narrator did a better, sounded better than Bill did. Probably sounded much better than Bill. That was Howard Luckenbill, and he's married to Lucille Ball, and he was willing to help me with this project. So, but look, you know, he's talking about unhooking. You see, what emotional dependency does is it, it gets us to try to hook people in, to hook them in to do what we want them to do, because we think if we can regulate the other people that we're going to be okay, because we put so much of our self-esteem in terms of who, how they treat us, how they think about us, how we look to them. So let's now take this and now move towards this emotional sobriety inventory and what it's about. So let me set it up a little bit. You guys have forms. There, I don't know if there's any left, but if you didn't get one, you can send me an email and I'll make sure you get one later on. That, that's a good question for Fred. Do you have a sense of where Bill was, what was going on with him? We're looking at, what, 1956, so it's, what, 21 years into his recovery, into his journey. He's just published the 12 and 12 and 53, um, all of which, uh, to me, are clearly, you can see his development leading to this, where he first witnessed it in the unmanageability and the individual behavior and the chaotic growth and all of that. Um, I'm not sure the exact circumstances then, but there were, I think he just finally kind of uh, got sick and tired of, of the unsustainability of those painful dependencies. Yeah. And it's like they ground him down. And because he'd had depression earlier, you know, he said, I, I can't go there. So. I think that has, that's as much as I know. I think that's, that feels right to me. All right, so let's look at this whole emotional sobriety inventory. We know that we change when we learn from our experience. But you can only learn from your experiences if you're willing to be honest with yourself. And that's what this whole thing is about. The one piece of research that stands out when they talk about addicts and alcoholics, is there a personality? You know, is there the addict personality? The answer is no. But what we do know that cuts across all different styles of personality is that alcoholics and addicts fail to learn from their experience. That's why we've never grown up. That's why we've never faced, you know, what's really going on in our life. What's the definition of insanity that you hear? We continue to do the same thing expecting? Right, we say different results. The truth is we expect better results. We're more outrageous than that. We don't even want to own it when we say those sentences. We expect better results, not different. We think it's going to be better this time around. And there's no evidence in the world that suggests it's going to be better. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that suggests what? It's probably going to get worse, not better. That's the game we play with ourselves. So let's see what we can learn from our experience. And the way you do that is by unpacking this thing. So here's what uh, Ernie Larson said. In relationships, my lot in life changes not when I demand changes in others, but when I take stock in myself. Right? 
Virginia Satir says the same thing. She says, I draw a picture and I put my in my mind of a circle with myself in the middle. And then I ask myself, what part of my problem are my thoughts playing? Are my fears playing? Are my expectations? Are my interpretations? And my lack of, of faith in being able to grow and to learn from this experience. So if we can all hold that, then we can do this inventory that we're going to be talking about and where we make our shift from environmental support to self-support. And this is what Karen Horney says about it. If we are able to liberate these evolutionary constructive forces, your desire to grow into the best person you can be, the humanistic psychologists are clear that we have that basic need, she goes, then you know, you're able to realize your given potentialities. All right, so let's look at this inventory. Right, We're becoming aware of the gravitational pull of this thing. And we're going to follow Bill's suggestion that if we examine every disturbance we have, great or small, we're going to find that it's root some unhealthy dependency and it's consequent unhealthy demand. So if you got that form, you can follow it with this form. I'm going to give you an example of a client I worked with, then I'm going to give you a more personal example. So here was this guy's upsetting event. I did this workshop for APSAC up in um, Canada. So he got up, he had about four years of recovery. And he gets up and says, you know, this sounds stupid that I'm going to talk about, but i got to talk about it. I come home from work, and I've just told my wife, the one thing, honey, that you can do for me in our relationship is please don't have any dishes in the sink. I don't, when I walk in that door after a long day of working, I would love to see that sink clean and the dishes put away. That's what he was asking. Now, that sounds kind of like a reasonable request, but it wasn't a request on his part because when she didn't do it, he'd walk in the door, there'd be some dishes in it, he'd get totally pissed. But he was one of these guys, instead of getting pissed, he got silent. You know those types, right? Totally. He's fuming. Smoke is probably coming out of his ears, out of his nostrils. He goes, he plops himself on a couch, pulls out his big, you know, Samsung Galaxy 5S and starts playing Angry Birds. And saying, you know, and thinking that she's going to know that she violated, right, this important thing in his life. And he'll sit there for hours and she'll walk by ignoring him. And he's getting more and more upset about it, right? We know this, this drill, right? So then, then he said, all right, well, what is your unreasonable expectation? Well, you see it. Well, you know, I don't know if this is that unreasonable. See, everybody has trouble when they come to this column because we all think of ourselves as so reasonable. So he's saying, look, I, you know, I grew up in this family where, my God, my mom was just, it was chaotic and messy. And when, you know, the dishes and stuff was just, for me, a symbol of the chaos in my life. And I hated it. And all I want to do is not have that in my life today. Meaning, all I want her to do is, is to straighten that out. So I don't have to deal with all those feelings I have about what was going on when I was growing up. You see what he was up to? Right? That if she did what he wanted her to do, then he wouldn't have to deal with the chaos and what he had to do to really get free from this. It wasn't her cleaning the dishes that was going to solve this problem. So what I helped him do is to realize that I want her to demonstrate her love for me by doing exactly what I want her to do. I says, that doesn't sound like love to me. He goes, really? Yeah, and I said, yes, really. That does not sound like love. There's no room in it for her. 
There's no such thing as love if there's not room in it for the other person. Now it's a demand. You're being a warden. You're not being a partner. You're turning into a tyrant. That's not love. There's no tyranny in love. It's a partnership. And there's no room for her in this thing. In a healthy relationship, there's room for both people. So whether she wants to do those dishes or not is also important. Not just that he demands that she does them. So the second step was, is that, wow, all of a sudden his experience of being loved or not feeling loved is dependent on her compliance. Instead of finding something in himself where he can love her regardless of circumstances, then he'd be treating her better than he treats a stranger. You follow me? See, that's what we're looking at. So what did he need to do to get centered? Well, he needed to look at this thing and see what he was putting on top of her. And when he started to get it, you could just see when I was working with him, I was doing a demonstration in front of about 500 of his colleagues. And then he was very courageous to look at this thing. He goes, oh, my goodness. I go, yeah, what do you think you need to do now? He goes, I need to make amends to her, don't I? Well, I, sounds like you think that would be a good idea, don't you? Yeah, it would be a good idea. See, so that's what you come up with, and that's what this spot check inventory is about, is to be able to own Right When we're stepping over, when we're now making demands and placing demands and now beating somebody up to do what we want them to do so that we can feel okay. When he starts to own this and do this work, then he can love her regardless of what she's doing. Doesn't that sound like unconditional love? That's what we're talking about, right? That there's room enough for two in the relationship. But let me share a more personal example that... I shared with Harry earlier, and they helped me even unpack some of my experience with this, which you guys are welcome to take my inventory as I do this, all right? But it's, it stops here, all right? It stops. So some of you see me run around with little Maddie, right, down the halls and stuff like that. Well, you know, um, I think about two years ago now, she's 16 months, two years ago, my wife Jessica is a cancer biologist. She was working at UCLA. We were having a child through UCLA Birthing Center. And they've got this big grant to do all this genetic testing. So they just do it. And it's something that they do with every family that goes through the program. So we go through it. And she discovers that she's got a gene that if I have this gene, Maddie's going to have a 25% chance of having this horrible spinal illness. Where in the worst case, she's going to live maybe a year and in the best case, till she's about 15. Well, you could imagine how we reacted to that when we got that news. Now, they had to draw blood, but it was going to take them three weeks before they got back the results in terms of whether I was, you know, also carrying this gene or not. And if I wasn't, then the odds of Maddie coming with this thing just changed dramatically. Well, what was our first reaction? My God, my first reaction, I started crying. God, this is terrible. A year, I was totally knocked off balance. The anxiety I experienced that night, I could not sleep. Right? I wish I could have picked up a drink. I mean, that wasn't an option for me. But that's when I would have been drunk that night. No question in my mind. Been totally blottled because I didn't want to feel what I was feeling. And she was in the same thing. And then I started having these fantasies. You know, my God, her life, what is her life going to be like? What is my life going to be like? This is horrible. She's going to miss this. She's going to miss that. I could not find a way to regain any balance that night. Totally knocked off balance. But I kept sitting with this thinking, there's got to be some way. 
So what was going on? Well, when we go back and start to look at this inventory in terms of what happened, you know, my reaction was to get very anxious, to get very sad, to cry, to have all those things. But what was the demand underneath it? And Harry and I were sitting there talking. He says, boy, you really wanted her to be a perfect child, didn't you? You wanted her to have perfect health. So you realize that your demand in that situation was that she had to be perfect, and if she was perfect, then you were going to be okay? Wow. I would never see that before. That wouldn't be something I'd let into my consciousness. And you know what changed it? And this makes me cry. When we talked the next day, I said to her, you know, honey, I think we're giving this situation too much power. Are we going to love Maddie any differently? No. Can we love her in a year and a lifetime? You're damn right we can. Can we love her if we've got 15 years that we're going to love her as much as we can in 15 years? God, we will do that, won't we? Because that's who we are. It's who we want to be to her. That's who I want her to be to her. And you know what? When I said that, and I was able to share that with her, oh my goodness, I slept that night like a baby. I was now balanced. The anxiety was gone. It didn't matter anymore what was going to happen. What was making the difference was how I was going to respond to it. Right? In terms of that, I was going to be there for her no matter what. And I was able to recover my balance. Now, thank God, Maddie's who she is, and I love her. But I would have loved her no matter what. It doesn't matter anymore. That's the alarm that says we've got to wrap this up in a few minutes. But Perfect timing. <laughs> ling, ling, ling. What, what, you guys want to make a comment about that anyway? I mean, what you guys both shared with me before was so powerful. You know, I, um, I don't think any comment is necessary. I'm just looking at the faces who just listened to you. That's enough comment for me. And that situation to me represents a huge improvement in the quality of the problems that we get to learn from. And when it happens, it's remarkable and unexpected. It's a turn for the better, and it's perfect for everybody involved. And those are the things that we can't craft, design, write a business plan for, and make happen. They're remarkable and unexpected turns for the better, which when manifest are perfect for everybody involved. And you can't make this stuff up. So you can't That's a very powerful up. story. Thanks, Al. You're welcome. You know, once the decision is made that Maddie was going to be perfect no matter what was wrong physically, then she was enough and you were enough. Yep. That's what it was, wasn't it? And what you said to before, isn't that the message about loving the imperfection, not only in ourselves, but in each other? And that's what we want to send you out with today, is right, is to really, when you start to embrace yourself and both the parts of you that are great and grand and also the parts of you that are pretty shitty and where you're a pissy little baby, and you can own that, and start just integrating that in your life, then you're able to do what Bill said. He goes, sobriety is only the bare beginning. It's only the first gift of the first awakening. And if more gifts are to be received, our awakening has to go on. And if it does go on, we find that bit by bit by bit we can discard that old life, that one that was based on all that nonsense about who we had to be, who we should be, for a new life that can and does work under any conditions whatever. See, here's the freedom now that we talked about. 
right? How do you get freedom? Well, when your life works under any condition, whatever, you're totally free. Totally free. That's why I drank and used. I wanted freedom from all this nonsense going on in my head. I couldn't stand myself. But when I got loaded, I was free of all that nonsense, right? None of that mattered. And now today I can experience that freedom without having to use. He goes, regardless of worldly success or failure, regardless of pain or joy, regardless of sickness or health or even of death itself, a new life of endless possibilities can be lived if we are willing to continue our awakening. Well, thanks for joining us today for this.